But tonight we're in Judges chapter 10, and so let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll uh, work our way through this, this chapter. Father, we thank you for your goodness, thank you for your grace, thank you for this place in which we meet. We don't take it for granted, Lord, um, and we just pray that you would uh, provide our hearts and minds the ability to focus on your word tonight, set aside the busyness of our day, and Lord, that we would be able to um, glean from the truths that we study tonight as we look at these uh, two minor judges here in the first five verses of uh, Judges 10. And uh, we just pray that you would uh, speak truth to our hearts. Thank you for each one that's here, and thank you for those that aren't, aren't here that are maybe traveling. And uh, we just pray that you would give them a safe passage uh, back, back to us uh, when they're done with their vacation. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in Judges chapter 10. And uh, we're going to be looking at the unmen, unknown men who made a difference. The unknown men who made a difference. And so far in our, in our study of Judges, we've looked at the ministries of Othniel, Ehud, uh, Shamgar, Deborah, and Gideon. And all of those judges, except uh, Shamgar, led the, the people of Israel... Uh, as we've seen, to an outstanding military victory, each one of them. And uh, of the, the people we just mentioned, one man stands out as being different, and that was uh, Shamgar. And he's considered to be one of the minor judges. And there's, there's six minor judges in all, and uh, they are... Uh, Shamgar in Judges chapter 3. We looked at him already. Tonight we're going to look at Tola and Jair in Judges chapter 10. And then in Judges chapter 12 we meet three more uh, minor judges. And that's uh, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And the reason they're called minor judges is because they were no great military judges. victories or leaders like Deborah and Gideon had. When we looked at them, remember, they, they had overwhelming victories militarily. And so they were men who helped um, maintain the peace of Israel, these minor judges, but they weren't involved in military conflict. And so they, they refer to them as the minor judges. Uh, but they were just as important, I think, to the nation of Israel as the other judges uh, because they did provide them with leadership and they did uh, provide um, some guidance for Israel a lot of times when Israel was under extreme pressure <coughs> and, and not doing so well. And so we're going to look at the, the lives of these two men tonight, uh, Tola and Jair. And the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about them. So we're going to basically draw some principles out of what we know about them. It doesn't have uh, a lot to be said, um, <clears throat> but we're going to look at, at these two tonight and see what uh, their lives and their deeds teach us. Um, and it, and it kind of helps us understand the principle that you don't have to be someone famous to have an impact for the Lord. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of these guys before, Tola or Jair, but um, they have a combined service to the nation of Israel 45 years. So they had some influence. Um, maybe not as much as Gideon, or they weren't 
in the limelight like the other ones, but they were still important. And uh, I want you to see tonight that God delights in using even the unknown servants to help his people glorify his name and build his kingdom. Uh, it's not just the, the famous pastors on, on TV or the, the famous ministers here and there that, that uh, God is interested in. It's, it's those who are faithful to his word. And so we want to see what God's word has for us. So let's just read through the chapter. You'll notice the first five verses deals with um, Tola and, and Jair, and we'll just be reading that. And then the rest of the chapter basically is a rehash of what we've seen in this cycle of sin, as I call it, in the nation of Israel. Remember, Israel uh, does what's right in the eyes of the Lord. God blesses them, and then they fall what? They fall back into sin, um, and they start serving pagan gods, and God has to discipline them. So God raises up a pagan nation, and they come against Israel and crush Israel, and then Israel cries out in repentance. God hears their prayer. And they turn from their idols back to their true God. God forgives them and uh, restores them. And this is a cycle. It's just continuous throughout this book. It it's actually gets boring after a while. It's like, really? I mean, haven't you learned your lesson yet? And yet, before we're too hard on Israel, all we have to do is look in the mirror, right? Our own lives. I mean, how many times do we do things that are not right in the eyes of the Lord? And we feel the conviction and we go to the Lord and we repent and we get restored, but, you know, a month later or weeks later or moments later, we're back at the same place. So, you know, we can't condemn Israel too much here. But let's read through the chapter, chapter 10, and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. So verses 6 through 18 basically deal with um, this cycle, and the first five verses deal with the guys we're going to be looking at. It says, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. So he was their leader for 23 years. That's quite a long time. Then he died, and he was buried at Shamir. That's it. That's all we hear. Verse 3, and after him arose Jair, uh, the Gileadite, and who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities. So he was obviously a little more wealthy than Tola, and they called uh, the, the, the place uh, Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cayman. Verse 6, And the people of Israel, here we go, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Asheroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines. And into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. And for 18 years, this went on, <laughs> they oppressed the people of Israel, um, all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Verse 9, And the Ammonites <clears throat> crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. 
So they were getting it from all sides. Verse 10, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to them, said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? Verse 13, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, this is a very haunting verse, I will save you no more. Wow. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the times of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, hey, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped against they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mitzvah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? And he shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So we see in the last from verses 6 to 18, this cycle of sin, right? It just continues over and over and over again. And I, I want to do a, a calculation. I, I didn't have time to do it uh, tonight, but of how much time Israel spent in oppression. <laughs> because it seems like they never get it. You know, they had 45 years of these, these judges leading them in a very positive way and um, as soon as they're dead they fall right back in to this cycle of bad behavior the cycle of sin and what's unfortunate is when you when you look at this these last several verses here it's like you really see they're they're testing the patience of the lord i mean for the, for god to say you know what i'm not going to save you anymore that's that's a haunting message from the Lord. Uh, and, and, you know, it just shows that there, there can come a point, even, I believe, even in a believer's life, that they spurn the discipline of the Lord, they're caught up in sin, and, and God says, okay, you know what, that's it. I'm not going to help you anymore. And I'm going to leave you to your own devices. And that's, you know, really speaking of unbelievers, but in Romans 1, that's really what God does, right? He gives people over to the passions of their heart, and he says, okay, this is, this is it. Um, and it doesn't mean you're losing your salvation, because we can't lose our salvation. God doesn't take our salvation away. But I believe, even as believers, if you were to spurn, you know, living in, in, in righteousness and holiness and, and just involved in active disobedience before the Lord, I think God's perfectly capable of saying, you know what, I'm going to take you home. I'm not going to leave you here anymore. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, a car salesman at a Ford dealer. You go down to buy a Ford, 
and the car salesman at the Ford dealer says, hey, you know what? Yeah, yeah, we sell Fords here, but I wouldn't buy one. You know, go to the Chevy dealer across the street. You don't want to buy one of these cars. Trust me. I've been working here for 20 years. Well, you know what? If, if the manager of that operation heard what that salesman was doing, he would be gone in a second. And, you know, I think sometimes when you have a believer who is just willfully defiant of God and they're doing their own thing, God finally says, that's it. I'm done. You know, you're fired. You're coming home. And we see that in the New Testament. Certain people have, have tested God, and, and it says that they were killed on the spot. And uh, praise God for his grace, right? I mean, we'd probably all be dead by now. But it's important to realize that, you know what, we need to be reminded that this cycle of sin is active in every one of our hearts and our lives. It's not just Israel that does this. We all do this, and that's why the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, right? When we confess our sins, that what? He's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins. And not only that, but cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's, <clears throat> that's a, a promise that you can hold on to. And that's what should drive you back to the Lord. You know, the worst thing for a believer is when they start to try to run from God. Because you can't. You can't. You're not going to outrun the arm of God. And he will have his way. And so it's easier just to surrender and say, okay, you know. And that's really what happens to them. If you look down there uh, at verse 10, it says, The people cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you. And they even state why. We have forsaken our God and have served Baals. And the Lord says, hey, didn't I save you from all these people? He goes through this list of people. And then in verse uh, uh 13, yet you have forsaken me, God says, and served other gods. Therefore, I'm not going to do anything. Go and cry out to the gods you want to serve. You know, you, you want to have fun in the world and sin and do all this stuff? Okay, go for it. You're going to pay a price. And then he says in, it says in verse 15, and then the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. They say the same thing. We have sinned. But look at what the response is. Do to us whatever seems good to you. You know, that's when you know someone is truly repentant, I think, is when they're willing to embrace the consequences of their sin. I've talked to people who have been in trouble with the law, and they become a Christian. And maybe they have a pending court case or something. And, you know, are you a little nervous about this? Well, you know, I don't want to go to prison. But maybe God wants me in prison. <laughs> I mean, that's their attitude. You know, there's a consequences to pay for what I did that was wrong. I'm okay with that. Whatever, whatever God works out. And you can tell that you're truly trusting God in, in that situation. And that's really where we find these, these people. Um, it says, we've sinned. Do whatever seems good to you. Please deliver us. They're asking for his deliverance. But then it says in verse 16, look at what it says. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. So they held on to their, 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 their pagan gods at the end of verse 10. They were still serving the pagan gods, even though they said, hey, you know, we, we've sinned against you, Lord. And it took down to verse uh, 15, or fi- verse 16, that they say that they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And so... You know, sometimes people can say they're repenting, but they don't bring forth the fruits of repentance, right? And so we, ha- we have to have both. 
And so that's that, that cycle of sin. But it, in the first five verses here, we're looking at these two gentlemen, these two men, these two judges. And the first thing I see here is this mess that they inherited. And, and you look at verse 1, it says, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola. Now, that name Abimelech should be familiar to us. We looked at this guy last time in, verse, in chapter 9 of Judges. Remember, Judge, uh, Abimelech was the son of Gideon by his concubine, so he's kind of a half-breed, all right? Um, and after the death of Gideon, remember what happens, Abimelech basically says, you know what? I'm going to be the new king of Israel. I'm just going to make myself king. Here's an opportunity. I'm going to take it. And he goes to his half-breed people, the, the Shechemites, his, his mother's people, and he says, hey, you want me on your side, right? I mean, these other people aren't even your blood, and I'm, I'm your blood, so I, I, I'll work for your benefit if you'll make me king. And so he begins to divide the people of Israel. And the men of Shechem decided amongst themselves, well, we're going to help Abimelech, because he is one of us, he's one of our brothers, so it would be good to have us king. It would probably work out for our benefit. And so in chapter 9, verse 4, it says they gave him 70 pieces of silver. It's kind of a sign of good faith. Hey, maybe this will help you, you make yourself king. And using the money, what does Abimelech do? He, he goes out and he hires a group of thugs, hitmen, you might say, to help him achieve his goal. And remember, chapter 9 is filled with all this blood and gore, and Abimelech takes these men, these thugs, to his father's house, and he slaughters 69 of his half-brothers. One gets away. Jotham escapes. But this was the, the evilness that was in Abimelech's heart. He was pursuing power in a way uh, that was pure evil. He didn't care who was in his way, even his own brothers, his own siblings. He wiped them all out. Why? Because they were a threat to his plan to make himself king. And then, after that, we saw what happens is these men of Shechem, even the old, his people that gave him the 70 pieces of silver that supported him at first, they declared him to be their king, and they thought, okay, well, this should work out. And he ruled for three years as their king. But it wasn't a good, a good, good thing. It didn't end well. And uh, in the end, even his own people, the Shechemites, turned against him because he was just in it for himself. He was abusing people. He was doing all this stuff. You can read about it in chapter 9. And there began a war between... Um, the, the Shechemites, the, the people who made him king, and the faithful followers of Abimelech. And so there was kind of this civil war going on. And in the midst of the attack upon the walls of Thebes, Abimelech kind of got maybe a little too cocky, and he got up too close to the wall of the people they were attacking, and there was a woman, of all people, on top of the wall, and said, hey, isn't that their leader? I'm going to take him out. And she took a big millstone that was sitting up there, and she pushed it off the top of the wall, and the Bible says it came down and hit him in the head. Pretty much ended his life. Not completely. It was a fatal blow. He was still alive, the Bible tells us. And knowing that he was dying, he was going to die, <clears throat> he cried out to one of his fellow followers there, a soldier that was nearby, he said, hey, just stab me with the, your sword because I do not want to go down as King Abimelech who got killed by a woman. 
I mean, this is how vain this guy was. His dying breath was trying to preserve his legacy. And by the time Abimelech is dead, what's left in the nation of Israel? It's, it's in tatters. It's going through the Civil War. Um, and it's not only militarily in tatters, but spiritually they have major problems going on. Because as soon as Gideon died, the Bible tells us that the people of Israel turned their backs on God and they went back to worshiping this, this Canaanite fertility god, Baal. And as a result of all these problems, here's the nation of Israel. It's in this complete mess. And what does God do? God raises up someone, Tola and Jair, to deal with this. And this is what they were facing. And so we want to look at just a couple principles here, I think, that we can understand um, just from the situation. I mean, that's the nation of Israel. It's in, it's in complete disarray. And yet God still raises up Tola and Jair for a purpose. And I think the first thing there is, is that God always has a remnant. This should encourage us today in the country in which we live even. <clears throat> in Israel at this time, things were really bad. It was really bad. There was, the nation was at war within itself. The majority of the people, they're worshiping pagan gods. They're worshiping idols. And yet, in the midst of all that, God still has a faithful remnant of believers, of people. <clears throat> and even today, that fact has not changed. Um, I think so many times today, as Bible-believing conservative Christians, especially in the area in which we live, we feel like, wow, we're the only ones. No, we're not. God has a remnant of people here. It's not a great number, but there are faithful pastors teaching the Bible in the Bay Area, and there are faithful people going to those churches I mean, sometimes I think we feel like Elijah when he entered that valley of depression and he came to believe that he was the only person, remember, in the country that was living for God and doing right. I'm the only one God. And he soon found out that God had a remnant in Israel. There were 7,000 others who had not bowed their knee to Baal. And so God still has a remnant, even in this increasing day of immorality and rampant wickedness, God still has faithful people who love him. God still has faithful people that serve him and that live for him each and every day. may not be a lot, but they're out there. There are still people that believe in prayer. <clears throat> there are still people that believe the Bible is the word of God. There are still people who love the church, who love attending the church. There are still people who are willing to share the gospel with someone who's lost. They're not afraid of the, the political correctness of doing that there's still people who are willing to testify and <clears throat> to honor god with their lives and that remnant might not be the majority you know when when i was in bible college <clears throat> jerry falwell had started a, a, an organization called the moral majority some of you may remember that and i thought boy that wouldn't fly today because <laughs> the majority of the people are not moral in our country. It's the complete opposite. And so we have to just remember that God always has a remnant. And then secondly, serving God is not always easy. I'm sure it wasn't easy for, it doesn't really give us all the details, but just given what they inherited here in this mess, Tola and Jair, it must not have been easy for them. They probably came out under a lot of uh, a scrutiny. It's not easy, but it's always right. 
when you choose to serve the Lord. It's never easy. Um, they had to deal with all these problems left by Abimelech. And as they dealt with the idolatry that was in the nation, I'm sure a lot of people thought, well, who are you guys? Who, you know, who are you to tell us what to believe? It was not an easy day to minister to the people of Israel, but they ministered anyway. Um, and that's unfortunate today because so many people, when it gets hard to minister, rather than to continue to do what they're doing, what do they do? They change everything up. Well, let's make it easier. You know, this message of, you know, Jesus dying on a cross and, and the nothing but the blood and all that, that's not flying with people today. People don't want to hear that, so let's change it a little bit. And we'll make it just a little easier for everybody to embrace. And that never works. That never honors the Lord. And so we can learn a lot from their example here. It's not always easy to walk in that old path that God has laid out when everyone around you is looking for the new path. You know, the new whatever it might be, the new book, the new thing to follow, whatever, whatever people are coming up with. <clears throat> but it's always right. It's always right to stick to what God has provided for us. It isn't always easy to live for the Lord when others around you are living for the world. That's not easy. You know that when you go to work. There's people at your work, your place of employment, your schools, whatever, that live for themselves, they live for the world, they live for the flesh, the devil, and yet you're called to live for God. That's a difficult thing to do. But it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. You know, we don't have to worry so much about what others around us are going to say. We have to worry more so. What, what's God's view on this? Uh, it isn't always easy to do the right thing when people around you are acting bad. But it's always right to do the right thing. Um, so you can make a choice to live for God even when everyone else seems to be doing their own thing, going their own way. And uh, our duty is not to look to them for their approval, but to look to him, to God, who perfectly ran his own race. Um, look it over just in the New Testament in Hebrews, just quickly, Hebrews chapter 1, or chapter 12. Hebrews 12, it tells us about the Lord. And he gives us him as an example. It says, therefore, in verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If I told you you had to run a race with endurance, you would say, well, that's probably not going to be an easy race. Right? If it was just a race for 10 feet, you're not going to have to endure too much. But if it's a race for 10 miles, you're going to have to endure a lot. So it's laying out here a picture of a race that's not going to be easy. And he says, uh, verse 2, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, <coughs> who for the joy that was set before him, what he do? He endured his race. He endured the race of the cross endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, considered him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So what do we do when we, we feel our endurance being um, run out? We look to Christ. 
and we remember what he had done for us. I mean, that was incredible uh, sacrifice that he made. And we remember verses like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things, right, through Christ who strengthens me. That means that you can stand up to your friends at school or at work or whatever that are not living for the Lord, and you can have an impact for them. And God has given you a platform there. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old. You have an opportunity to speak truth into people's lives. A lot of times we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Because we're fearful of what their response may be. And we have to get over that, and we have to realize it doesn't matter what the response is. If you're telling them the truth, it may not uh, please them. You know, you don't have to be a jerk about it. But we should always be looking for opportunities to share the Lord with people. And that's what Jesus said so much that we can't do anything without him. In John 15, verses 4 and 5, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me, Jesus said. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. It doesn't say you can do some things. It doesn't say you can do most things. It says you can do nothing. And the idea is you can do nothing that really bears any fruit that I will be pleased with. That's what God is saying. So if you try to go to school or you try to go to work thinking, oh, I got this. Well, you don't have it. It's a lot easier just to surrender and say, God, you've got you to use me because our world is a mess right now. I don't think anybody would argue with that. It doesn't matter whether you're in the classroom or you're at the job site or you're at the grocery store. The world is a mess. And we can blame a lot of people for that. You can blame Washington. You can blame the modern contemporary churches that are dumbing down the gospel. And we can blame one another. But at the end of the day, I think the blame rests with each one of us. You know, being unwilling to speak up and to be the salt and the light that God has called us to be. Um, unfortunately, the church has ceased to do what is right. And they're more, they're more concerned about what people are thinking about them. Not so much what God is thinking about them. And so we have to get back to that that idea that, you know what, we're going to live for the Lord each and every day. If that offends people, so be it. You know, you don't want to be offensive just to be offensive. But if you're willing to be part of a conversation where someone says, well, you know, you know I think there's many ways to God and blah, 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 and you're not going to say anything because it wouldn't be politically correct, you better check your heart. You know, that's a prime opportunity to say, well, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, yeah, I think Jesus was a good guy. He was a good teacher. Well, you know what Jesus said? Well, what do you mean? Well, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. What do you think about that? Well, that, that seems kind of exclusive. Exactly. And you share with them the gospel. And you let God do the work. Don't shy away from opportunities like that. Um, it's time for the remnant of the Lord, especially in our modern-day situation, to stand up and to fight for the small things we have left. Um, in Romans chapter 13, Paul speaks of this. In Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, he says, Besides this, you know the time. For the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. The church needs to wake up. For salvation is nearer to us now 
than when we first believed. The night is far gone, verse 12, Romans 13. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness or sexual immorality or sensuality or in quarreling or jealousy. Verse 14, he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, it's time the church stood up and started to fight for the family, for the home, for marriages, and for the church, and for the community. Because we can grow very fatalistic in our theology. Well, you know, in the end, it's not going to get any better, so I guess this is the way it's got to be. Well, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. What if Jesus hasn't come back for another thousand years? Could God turn this around for 500 years? Sure he could. Whether it's his plan or not, I don't know. But I'm not willing just to give up. And I think just this past election, it was a gut punch for all of us. Most conservatives it was. But you know what? God has a purpose in this. God has a plan. And he'll carry it out. So if we fail to stand, I think, for what is important for us today, we shouldn't complain when it's taken from us tomorrow. So they, they these, these two guys, uh, Tola and Jair, they inherited this mess of Israel from Abimelech. And the second point here is, look at the ministry they performed. These, these two guys aren't known for their military might. They didn't do anything militarily, from what we understand. They probably didn't command great armies like the other judges did. Uh, they may not have left a great legacy of even spiritual achievements. Basically, it just says, yeah, they served 23 years, 22 years, and then they died. <laughs> they were buried. That was it. But what they did accomplish deserves consideration. Um, what they did still challenges us today. I mean, both of these men, if you stop and think about it, helped maintain peace for the nation of Israel for nearly 50 years, 45 years. And this nation was split by civil war, by rebellion, by pagan worship. So they must have done something right. That in and of itself is not no small feat. And when there were no attacks from the outside, they helped really prevent the nation from being ripped apart from within. And theirs was a ministry of, you might call it a ministry of peace <laughs> during turmoil. Uh, the men also helped to preserve the heritage of their nation. They ministered to the faithful remnant, the people that were left there, in a time when the, that, that fading remnant needed consistent leadership. You know, they dealt with people like Abimelech, leading them here, leading them there, causing all these problems. Now they had somebody that was at least steady at the plow. They were, Tola and Jair did, in their day, exactly what they were supposed to be doing. They heard the call of God, and they, they were that faithful, constant leadership that Israel needed at that time. You could say they acted like, like salt, like we're called to be the salt of the earth, Jesus says. And salt, as you know, it purifies, it adds flavor, uh, it helps preserve meat, it does a lot of different things. And in the Bible times, that salt was even more valuable than money. 
a matter of fact, the Roman soldiers, when they received their salary, they received it in salt. <laughs> that's how valuable it was of a commodity. That's where we get the word salary from the Roman word salarium, talking about their being paid in salt. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's not worth his salt? That's where that comes from. It comes from that practice. And so when Jesus called us the, the salt of the earth, he uses that, that illustration, that metaphor, to teach us of the influence that he wants us to have in this world. Um, a couple things about that influence. It, it could be our preserving influence. When, when you have salt, you put it on a meat. When it's rubbed into a meat, um, it, it tends to preserve that meat over a period of time. It's a preservative. It's, you know, uh, I think that even in, in, with Sodom and Gomorrah, they could have been saved by the preserving influence of just ten righteous men, the Bible says. And that's kind of what it is with salt. You don't need a lot of it to be a preservative, but you need some of it. And I think that we need to be more focused on that, trying to preserve things, rather than just stepping away and going, oh, well, you know, whatever, it's all going to go down the tubes anyway. So it has that preserving influence. It also has a penetrating influence. Um, one thing about salt, if, if you just take a, a fresh, clear glass of water and you just put a couple, like, small grains of salt in there and you drink that water, well, it tastes salty. You can taste the salt. You don't need a lot. It, it penetrates whatever it touches. It's a very aggressive substance. And that's kind of what Jesus meant by being the salt of the world. That's what we see in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 17 about the early church. They, they penetrated the area in which they lived. And then they went out from there. And I believe that's what we have been called to do. Uh, the church should be a militant army charging the very gates of hell, according to Matthew 18 or Matthew 16, 18. That's what our, our call is to, to be, not just to sit back in our armchairs of grace and say, oh, well, God's got this. We have to be a penetrating influence. We also have to have a purifying influence. Second Kings tells us in chapter 2 that Elisha cleansed the waters at Jericho with salt. Kind of an interesting way to cleanse water. Uh, in ancient times, when they had babies, what would they do? They would wash the babies uh, in salt to cleanse their body and to give a firmness to their skin. If you put salt in a wound, it cleanses that, that wound. It doesn't feel very good, <laughs> but if you've ever done that, but it does cleanse it. Uh, so Christians are to have this purifying effect on the world around them. They ought to be living and behaving differently um, than other people. And you, you don't have to... Uh, um, you, know, you have to be aware of that. You know, when you're at the water cooler in the office and somebody's telling an offhand joke that's not honoring to the Lord, what's your attitude toward that? Are you laughing along with everybody else? Like I said, you don't need to be a jerk at that time, you know, and be self-righteous, but at the same time, 
they should know that, wow, you know, you don't appreciate that. Um, sometimes, I, I talked to one guy one time, and, and uh, very outspoken individual, almost to the point of being legalistic, you know, that kind of a, a Christian. And I was talking to him, and uh, I said, how, how, do you, how does it work for you at, at work with this kind of an attitude? And he just, oh, I don't, I don't act this way at work. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, they don't even know I'm a Christian at work. I thought, wow. I mean, how hypocritical. He couldn't even see it. You know, but boy, he'd come to church and just spout all kinds of stuff. Um, and, you know, we have to be careful of that. We, we, we should thank God that we're acting as a purifying force in the world around us. Um, Leviticus tells us that every offering that was a meat offering was to be made with salt. All right, so it has that that purifying um, aspect to it. Also, there's a pleasing influence. You know, when you when you eat a, a bland piece of food, whether it's meat or whatever, what do you do? You you reach for the salt, right? You want something to to bring a little flavor to it. All right, salt blends; it adds flavor to the foods we eat. And yeah, you can have too much salt, but for the most part, it adds a tr- tremendous flavor to it, and that's what we should. We should be. Um, we're to, to live our lives in a way that we bring out the best in those around us. You know, and that goes to the other ang- ang- angle of, of being a testimony. You know, at work, I hope you're not the guy that, oh, here comes Steve, self-righteous. You know, I can't have any fun anymore now, you know. But, you know, um, it's, it's interesting. So you have to judge, you know, where you're at with people. I mean, sometimes I think Christians go down the wrong path of expecting non-Christian behavior out of, out of, or a Christian behavior out of non-Christians. So, you know, if you're around a bunch of non-Christians and they're cussing up a storm, you know, what's your reaction to that? I mean, they're just doing what they naturally do, right? Um, once in a while you go on ride-alongs with police officers, and if it's a new officer that's never had a chaplain in the car, it's a real pain for about the first hour and a half on your ride along because they're just testing you. You're, they're using all kinds of vulgar language or whatever. They're, they're looking for a reaction from you. And when I don't give them one, you know, I just tune it out, basically, and go on with the conversation. After about a, an hour and a half, you've kind of earned their trust. And then all of a sudden, without even saying anything, they begin to, all that go, all the foul language goes away and they become a human being again, <laughs> you know. And they realize, okay, this guy's not too bad. So it's, 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 you should have that kind of influence on people, a pleasing influence. But also, we, we forget about this, but salt also has a poisoning influence. Matter of fact, salt kills some things. We forget about this. Have you ever um, poured salt on a slug? <laughs> Watch what happens. It's not, it's not pretty, right? Uh, slugs and salt do not mix. But if you take salt out and pour it all over your front yard, guess what? Your grass is going to die. Um, we read about that in just the last chapter, right? Judges 9, when what did Abimelech do? He took a city and he sowed the city with salt on all the fields so that it prevented them from growing anything. And uh, just an evil guy to do something like that, but that's what he did. And so when Jesus comes into a life... There's certain things that should be killed. There's certain things that should be done away with. 
Um, if Jesus comes into your life, the, the drinking and the cursing and the fighting and the hating and the killing and the drugs and all that stuff, that should be killed by that presence of Christ. And that's, we call that sanctification, right? God sets us apart onto himself. We become a new person in Christ. So it does have that poisoning influence, but then it also has a promoting influence. Salt creates a thirst for water. When you drink something salty, popcorn, all right, a pretzel, something, what do you want? You want water. You want a soda. You want something to put in your mouth that is a fluid because you're, you're thirsty. And as salt, the one thing as Christians we should be doing, we have an op- incredible opportunity really to promote a thirst for Jesus in the world today. I mean, people should look at our lives and go, wow, I want this. Now, unfortunately, um, you know, it hasn't worked out that way with the church. You know, a lot of times people look at people in the church and go, I don't want that. You know, keep those wackos away from me. Um, but when we, when we live like Christ wants us to live, uh, you know, we take Jesus seriously. We should look right. We should act right. We should talk right. Now, not 100% of the time. We're all going to sin. But we should do things that are, that are attractive to people. Um, and that has the ability to create a thirst for Christ in their own lives. And unfortunately, most Christians don't promote, don't promote thirst in other people's lives. Uh, they promote ridicule. And you have people, you know, why should I receive your Jesus? You know, look at this person, look at that person. I live just as well as the people down the church, down the street in the church. I mean, what do I need? What do I need that for? And a lot of times, unfortunately, they're right. <laughs> um, so we we have to live a life that proves them wrong. And so we must never give anyone cause to say, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to be anything like that. Uh, and that's why we don't want to be jerks about our faith. You know, we want to be honoring to the Lord. And also, salt has a proven influence. Salt changes everything that it touches, food, ice, whatever it might be. Um, You know, we're called to be um, thermostats, not thermometers. You know, and you say, well, what's the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? A, A thermometer basically just tells you what? What the temperature is, right? That's all it does. But a thermostat actually affects the temperature in the room. Um, if you walk up to a thermometer and try to change the temperature of a room, it's not going to work. A thermostat, you can actually turn a dial and it will actually activate a heating or cooling system and actually change the whole environment. And so we're to be used like thermostats by God in, in, in this world. And that's what God desires from us. So this is just some things that we drew out of these, these principles from the, these two men, and even though it doesn't tell us all the details, obviously they inherited a mess. They, they ministered for 45-some years, and they must have done something right. And then, last thing here is the message that they preach. They served a total of 45 years. They didn't lead any armies. They didn't build cities. They didn't write books. Um, but what they did was really far more important. These were two men who stood for God in an evil day. They were willing to stand up and do the right thing. 
their lives, even though little is recorded about them, still speak to our hearts today. Um, a couple things about their names. Tola, it actually means crimson worm. That's what the word means. And it speaks of this cocos worm that was found in oak trees back then. And these worms were used to produce a red dye that they used in the articles that they made uh, for the tabernacle. So it's kind of an interesting little background. It comes from the Hebrew word tala, which means to be clothed in scarlet. And Tola is the son of Puna, and his name means light. So Tola was really the son of light. You could call him that. And he could be a, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a man who, through humble service and self-surrender, became one of the, the saviors of Israel back then. And so, it's kind of neat how that ties in. And then Jair means the enlightener. And he reminds us, of our Lord, who is the Son of Righteousness, the light of the world. And uh, he was obviously a wealthy man. He was able to have all 30 of his sons with 30 donkeys and 30 cities. Uh, and he reminds us of the Lord Jesus, who owned everything and shares everything he owns with us. And uh, it's, it's funny that he's associated with donkeys because, you know, when when we think of a donkey, we don't think very highly, you know, you'd rather have an Arabian stallion or something than a donkey, right? Um, but the donkey is an animal that's associated with peace, unlike a horse that's associated with war. And so it really speaks to their, their ministry um, that Jair was a man of peace, even in this world, his world that was filled with turmoil and, and, and uh, conflict. Um, and it reminds us of Christ, Right? Who is the, what? the Prince of Peace. And so God raised up Jair to bring peace to a nation. And God raised up Jesus to bring peace to our souls and to reconcile us to the Lord. And um, I just think that's a kind of an interesting sidelight. Another lesson is you don't have to be famous to make a difference. Tola and Jair never really had their name up in lights, uh, but their, their service made a difference for thousands of people living in Israel. And I think the, true, the same is true for, for us today. Uh, a lot of people, you know, when I was younger as a believer, I would always say, wow, what if, and I'd fill in the name with a movie star, what if so-and-so got saved? Wow, what an incredible thing. That, think what they could do for the Lord, right? And you think, wow, God needs that fame and that whatever, uh, for, to use somebody, and that's just not true. Um, some people think they can't be used because they're not well known. God doesn't care about that. Uh, God, the best thing to understand is God has placed you exactly where he wants you to be. He knows exactly where he wants you. He knows who you are. He knows that he has an assignment for your life. Um, and he will use you in a way that you could never imagine. If you're just faithful, if you're just consistent in your in your Christian life and your duty and uh, your duty is to 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 really uh, grow where he planted you and to keep doing the last thing he told you to do until 
he tells you to do something different. The Christian life is not difficult. Um, you know, David had his sheep. Moses had his flocks. Peter and Andrew and James and John, what they had, they had their, their fishing nets, right? They all had something. And, and God used their, their talents and their backgrounds and everything for his glory. So you don't have to be some big name in lights. And you don't have to accomplish, next thing there is great deeds to live an extraordinary life. You know, sometimes we fall into that trap of thinking, well, if I could just do this, then someone would, no, it doesn't matter. You know, and that, that speaks to, you know, everybody from, you know, pastors to Sunday school teachers. You know, when you're preparing that lesson for two or three kids in your Sunday school class. Yeah, it might not be 30 or 40 kids, but you know what? God doesn't care. God just wants you to faithfully do what he's called you to do. These guys, Tola and Jair, they never did anything extraordinary, but their lives still testify to us today from the pages of Scripture. Uh, And even though you may not accomplish (coughs) things that this world calls great, you can still have an extraordinary life if you live for Christ each day and faithfully serve His church, His people, serve the Lord, do what He calls you to do. And then God can help you make the best of a bad situation. Sometimes life dishes out just kind of like a bad hand. You know, you're just like, how to end up with this? Um, but you know what? You've got to have faith that God can turn this around, whatever it might be. And Tola and Jair inherited a, a country that was in major turmoil in trouble. They could have said, I'm not taking this job. No way. But you know what? God put that on their hearts. And uh, God gave them the ability to hold their nation together for almost 50 years. And uh, there are going to be times of crisis when you walk with the Lord. There always is. But he's designed us for times like that, when we can trust him even more. And uh, his goal is to make you more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to give you the grace to do it each and every day. God is honored by another principle, and he will honor a consistent life. You know, um, you look at how long these two men were consistent in their service of Israel. You know, uh, even though they weren't popular, they weren't, you know, didn't do wonderful military campaigns or whatever, but they stood for the Lord many years, and God honored their faithfulness. And few things honor the Lord like being faithful to him. And it doesn't matter what else is going on. If you know what God wants you to do and you're willing to do it and you do it faithfully, over the long haul, God will reward you. And so I just want to encourage you to keep on living for the Lord no matter where you're at, what you're doing. Keep living for Him even when the times are lean, even when others fall away, even when you're attacked for your faith. Um, Keep living for Him even when it's unpopular. Keep living for him even when others walk away. At the end of a life of faithful, consistent love and service for the Lord, you'll hear these words in Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So hopefully you can glean a little bit 
from these two guys' lives. And you know what? No matter what it is God has called you to, trust Him to do it. Um, And as long as you continue to serve Him faithfully, He will reward you in the end. Amen? Amen. Next week we'll get into Jephthah in chapter 11. And he's the guy that God raises up to deliver Israel out of their situation. But uh, let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll have a little time of fellowship. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for these two men, their examples, Tola and Jair. And even though they weren't men of notoriety, they were men of faithfulness. And Father, I pray that our hearts would be ones that desire to serve you faithfully each and every day. It doesn't matter what we do or where we do it, um, whether it's the CEO of a company or the janitor or unemployed even, Lord. Whatever you have called us to at this point in our lives, Lord, I pray that we would do it with an attitude that is pleasing before you and that we would desire to serve you in all that we do. And we thank you and we pray that we would have a good night. Bless our fellowship now in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.